this morning, we're going to endeavor to, to be quite ambitious in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 8, but Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 26. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 26, in a message that I've titled, The Satisfaction That Comes by Seeing. The Satisfaction That Comes by Seeing. It's good to see, is it not? Can you imagine if you couldn't see? The, the challenge, the difficulty that would come by not seeing. That, that principle is something that God uses in the Gospels to describe the condition of the human heart unless Jesus makes us capable of sight. So this morning, we're going to learn how it is the bread that Christ is can satisfy us when we see who He is. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. In those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, there it is, no bread, Jesus called His disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with Me now three days, and then Jesus says it again, and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. Did you know if you're a great distance from Christ that you can still come to Him? Isn't that a, a good promise? That those who, who are far off can come to Jesus? Verse 4, And His disciples answered Him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. These are different fish than the fish in the feeding of the 5,000. They're small fish, probably more like sardines. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. Not normal, ordinary baskets like in the feeding of the 5,000, but large baskets. Seven large baskets. Verse 9, about 4,000 were there and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dal. Manutha. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him, sighing deeply in his spirit. He said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And you, you can't make up verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread. And did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? 
Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, Twelve. When I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. And he was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then he again he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and he began to see everything. Clearly. Then again, he laid his hands on his, excuse me, verse 26, and he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to see how wonderful and beautiful and satisfying your son is this morning. Spirit of God, help us in the hearing of your word By our hearing, may you give us eyes to see just how beautiful Jesus is. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. If you've ever had an eye exam, you've been asked, unless you've got perfect vision, better one or two? One or two? Two or three? Two or three. And if you're like me, you, sometimes you can't decide because it's like two and a half. The eye doctor in that moment is trying to fine-tune your prescription so that you can see as clearly as possible. We know instinctively that life is more satisfying the better that we can see. And Mark wants us to understand that that is true spiritually as well. The better you see and understand who Christ is, the more satisfying your life will be. And since Mark chapter 2, Jesus has been talking about bread that satisfies. Last week, in the heart of Gentile territory, an unnamed woman understands that Jesus is using physical bread to represent a spiritual reality. The reality of Christ's healing and saving power is the bread that we need. While we are powerless to help ourselves, this woman shows us that just a crumb from Christ's table is enough to liberate her and her daughter from demonic attack. But the disciples, unfortunately, are a bit like us. They are slow to see, slow to hear. Slow to understand the significance of the supernatural bread that Christ Himself is and that Christ supplies. But unless we understand who Christ is, we can't be satisfied by Christ. The more we see our complete dependence upon Christ as the bread which gives life and purpose, the more that we see Him clearly, the more He satisfies us. So this morning, I want to speak to you on the subject of the satisfaction that comes by seeing. In verse 8, when Jesus multiplies the bread to feed the 4,000, now here in Gentile territory, 
we read that they ate and were satisfied, just like those who ate in Jewish territory in the feeding of the 5,000 earlier in verse 6, verse 42. So for us to be satisfied in Christ, we must first understand Jesus is the only bread for all nations. There's no other bread. The same bread that's multiplied in Jewish territory is now multiplied in Gentile territory. God's got one bread for all people. Secondly, we must not put conditions on our willingness to receive Christ. We must not put conditions on our willingness to receive Christ. Thirdly, we must see the totality of our need for Christ. We don't just need Jesus a little bit. We need Him for everything. And finally, we must receive sight through the healing touch of Jesus. First, we must understand Jesus is the only bread for all nations. Now, that's not a very politically correct statement to make, is it? That Jesus is the only bread that can satisfy the hungry hearts of the people all around the world. There's plenty of people gathered in buildings called churches this morning that have thrown away the truth that only Jesus satisfies. They say, well, maybe it's something else. If we could just all come together and feel good about being together and pat each other on the back and tell everyone how good each other is, then we'll all be fine and we'll feel good about ourselves. And there's a level of satisfaction that that brings, but it's not the satisfaction that God intends for you to have that only comes through Christ. And it's not the satisfaction that will deliver you from the fires of hell. And so while there are people gathered around this morning celebrating a quasi-satisfaction, a satisfaction that does not come through Christ, they are not having and experiencing the satisfaction that God intends for them to have. And therefore, they are not a true church. When you throw away the fact that Christ alone can satisfy the nations, you've thrown away the right to be called a church of God. Jesus has already fed 5,000 men and their families in Hebrew territory. Now in those days, verse 1, it says, in those days, in other words, the days that Jesus is still in Gentile territory around the Decapolis, Jesus again multiplies bread in a miraculous fashion. These two accounts, the accounts of the feeding of the 5,000 men and their families, probably fifteen to 20,000 people, and now the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles, they're very similar accounts. Both emphasize Jesus' compassion. Both include Jesus' question, how many loaves do you have? Both include a prayer from Jesus and the disciples serving of the crowds. Both tell us that the people ate and were satisfied Both tell us that leftovers are gathered after the meals. And both conclude with Jesus dismissing the crowd and then taking another boat trip. Why are these stories so similar? Did somebody just write down a different story? No, they're they're different enough for us to know they're different. The numbers are different. 4,000 people total versus 5,000 men and their families. There's some other differences. The the size of the fish and the size of the baskets. We know they're two different accounts in two different places. But they are similar. And the reason that they are similar is because God wants us to know the spiritual nourishment that comes from Jesus is the same for Jew or for Gentile. 
There's no other bread that can satisfy. And there is still bread available in Jesus, by the way, to satisfy still more weary sinners who trust in Him. Jesus is making in Himself the one bread, one people gathered from among all the nations. Jesus provides for all who come to Him the same supernatural satisfaction, whether it's in Hebrew territory in chapter 6 or in Gentile territory in chapter 8. He is the bread who satisfies. This is why, incidentally, in the early church they didn't have little wafers split up into little trays that they passed around for the Lord's Supper. You know what they ate of? They ate of one loaf and they drank of one cup. And the symbolism of that is that Jesus is the only source and He's the same source for all people. You don't get a different Jesus than she gets. She doesn't get a different Jesus than He gets. We must all be restored and reconciled and satisfied and healed by the one and the same Jesus. There's only one. And He is the source of satisfaction for His church and His bride. And while these miracles are similar, we... We do find differences. In this miracle, the crowd remains with Jesus for three days, not just one day. You remember in the first account of the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples themselves are hungry. They're like, Jesus, we're hungry. But this time, the crowd persists with Jesus, apparently, for three days without eating. And Jesus personally declares in verse 2 His compassion for them. He feels the plight of the people. He identifies with us in our need. He says, if the people leave in this desolate place, verse 3, that they will faint. And Jesus knows that if we don't receive His soul-satisfying bread, that we will faint, that our lives will give way if we do not receive the bread of His deliverance. And so on the third day, interestingly enough, Jesus Himself says, these people need some bread. You see, if you persist with Jesus to the grave and, excuse me, to the cross and then to the grave and then to the resurrection on the other side of the resurrection on the third day, there is a bread that will supernaturally satisfy and deliver you from every ounce of hunger that you've ever had. In this miracle, Jesus begins, by the way, not with five loaves and two fish, but with seven loaves and a few sardines. And it concludes with seven baskets left over. Now you say, who cares about the seven baskets? What's up with the seven baskets? Do you remember way back in the Old Testament when the Israelites were told to take the promised land? Do you remember how many nations there were in Canaan that would be opposed to them? Deuteronomy 7.1 tells us this. God's going to lead you into the promised land to conquer seven nations greater and stronger than you. Now, you see, what Israel failed to do by her disobedience, she didn't fully take the promised land. Jesus is now going to accomplish by His obedience. And the way that He's going to make the nations into 
the way he's going to vanquish the enemies of God is he's going to make them his friends by substituting his life in their place. He's not going to kill them with the sword. He's going to take the sword himself so that he can be the bread for all nations and they can be incorporated into the Israel of God. Galatians chapter 6 verse I think 19. You see one day Jesus is going to come and he's going to vanquish those who reject the offer of his salvation. But right now the way Jesus is conquering the nations is he's allowing himself to be crucified and raised that he could be the life-giving bread to people like the Wiccan doctor in Africa who hear the gospel and they give their lives to Jesus and they say the chains of Satan have been broken in my life. Jesus is soul-satisfying, sin-destroying bread for all nations. You see, when Jesus multiplies the bread in Jewish territory, how many baskets are left over? Twelve. One basket for every Israelite tribe, for all the true sons of Israel who are seeking the promises of God fulfilled in the promised Son of God. Now Jesus is in Gentile territory. How many baskets are left over? Seven. Seven full large baskets signifying perfection or completion. In other words, there's enough spiritually satisfying deliverance in Christ to bring God's saving work in the world to completion. Isn't that a good promise for the church? We don't ever have to look for another loaf of bread. We don't ever have to look for another source of deliverance for the world. It will be the same message and the same Savior until Christ returns. We don't ever have to invent another bread, bake another loaf of bread. Jesus is the bread. In verse 4, the disciples ask, where can bread be found to satisfy the people? I love the disciples. I mean, they've already seen him feed the 5,000. They've been with him in Gentile territory where the woman understands the parable. And she says, I'll just take a crumb for your ta- from your table and that will be enough to heal my daughter. And now here they are with th- after three days with 4,000 people. And they ask, where can we find enough bread? And Jesus answers their question with his miracle. It is in the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves that the answer to the question is supplied. Only Jesus can satisfy the people. And it's interesting that after Jesus satisfies the people, He sends them away, verse 9. But the word for send away also means to liberate or to free. The only way you can be free, the only way you can be liberated, the only way you can be delivered from the trappings of relying on yourself to satisfy you is to find the soul satisfaction that comes from belonging to Christ and the freedom that that gives. And here's the truth, church. Some of you this morning, you've been around the bread your whole life, but you haven't eaten the bread yet. You haven't opened I don't know who did the, left this for me. I appreciate it. But you can't enjoy the bread until you open the bag and take a bite. You got to eat the bread. You can't just be around the bread and say, that's some good-looking bread. you got to eat the bread. You can't be freed and liberated and delivered until you partake of Christ by faith. And then Jesus will satisfy you. And He will satisfy you. The promise of the gospel is that no matter how great the distance is that you've been from Christ, He tells us some of these people have come a great distance from Jesus. And if you go home without the bread, you're going to die on the way. But if you will partake of the bread, it will satisfy you and liberate you like nothing else 
can. Don't let another Lord's Supper come by where you take a wafer out and put it in your mouth, but you have not yet the joy of the satisfaction of knowing Jesus deep down in your soul. Secondly, we must not put conditions on our willingness to receive Christ. Jesus gets in a boat, crosses to the westernmost part of the Sea of Galilee, and again, the Pharisees show up. Danny Aiken says this, the Pharisees show us that unbelievers will demand a sign, but reject one when they see it. Surely the Pharisees are familiar with Jesus' miracles. We know that because of what we've already read in the Gospel of Mark. But miracles are never enough. Because facts are never enough to break down a prideful human heart. You see, they ask for a miracle. They ask, excuse me, not for a miracle, but a sign from heaven. Seeking a sign is attempting to gain by empirical means what only can be gained by faith and trust. They, they want Jesus to be validated on their terms rather than on God's terms. But Jesus has already been validated by God Himself. Do you remember at Jesus' baptism? The Father says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is a living validation of the Old Testament. Everything He's doing was prophesied in the Old Testament. And yet, as Jesus tells us in Luke 16, 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You see, the language of verse 11 suggests the Pharisees really weren't that interested in a sign anyway. Instead, what they wanted to do was to test Jesus with a, a test that was designed to trick him, trip him up, or embarrass him. The word for come out against Jesus is a military term. It, it's suggestive of a military formation coming out to attack an enemy. The word seeking in verse 11 means attempting to gain control of someone. You see, their test is like loaded dice. Or perhaps a game at the Salem Fair. Nothing will qualify as passing their test or winning the game. Don't play those games at the Salem Fair, by the way. As Aiken writes, their goal is to discredit him before the people, not to authenticate his ministry. You see, when we test Jesus, church, believing that we can set the terms by which we will follow him, do you see what it does in verse 12? It grieves him. The Pharisees were basically saying to Jesus, Jesus, we aren't going to follow you unless we can control the control that you have in our lives. Now, is that coming to Jesus as Lord? No. Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you don't ask me to stop drinking. Jesus, I'll follow you as long as I'm always close to my family. Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you don't ask me to change my career. Jesus, I'll follow you as long as people know that I am important. Jesus, I will follow you as long as I don't have to be a generous giver. Jesus, I will follow you as long as you don't ask me to reevaluate the way I'm parenting my children based on your mission in the world. Jesus, I will follow you as long as having you as soul-satisfying bread doesn't mean letting go of all the bread substitutes that I've been enjoying. When we put conditions on following Jesus... Jesus sighs or he groans deeply in his spirit. Because receiving the soul-satisfying bread of Christ's presence only comes when we abandon the soul-destroying bread of our performance, of our own pride, our own privilege, and our own control. Faith in Christ that satisfies is faith without conditions on Christ's authority in our lives. 
And where Jesus does not find this sort of faith, eventually what happens is we are judged. We are judged by Jesus' leaving. We are judged by His departure. Jesus uses the words in verse 12, this generation, it reminds us of what happened to the generation of disbelieving people in Noah's day, Genesis 7-1, or to the generation of the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness because they would not enter the promised land and they are judged for their lack of faith or their faith that comes only with conditions. You see, those who were closest to Jesus missed their opportunity, while those who were off a far great distance came and received Christ as their bread. If we're going to see Jesus, the bread that satisfies, we must also see the totality of our need for Jesus. We see this in verses 14 through 21. Jesus and the disciples, they get back in the boat. And guess what? Nobody remembered to restock the bread. Once more, the disciples have a bread problem, but it's not the problem they think that they have. Jesus... Have you figured this out yet? Jesus is not talking about physical bread. (laughs) He's talking about something uh, uh, entirely different. You see, we know this because His disciples, He commands His disciples what? You should have gotten some bread out of the baskets. You know there were seven overflowing large baskets. You could have picked up a few loaves. Is that what Jesus says? No, He says, beware, take heed, watch out, keep on looking out for. It's a continual command. What? The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. At this moment, church, we should see that Jesus and the disciples are talking about two different kinds of bread. Jesus speaks of a leaven that comes not in bread. It's not yeast in bread. It's a leaven that comes from people. It's a spiritual leaven. Both the Pharisees and Herod are opposed to Jesus because he's a threat to their power, their comfort, and their control. Herod and the Pharisees are cozy with one another. Herod, if you let us do what we want to do, we'll let you do what you want to do, and everything will be happy. We'll have what we call religious freedom. We'll come and go as we please. We won't bother one another, and everything will be comfortable. It will be a nice alliance of convenience, and we won't have to deal with the authority of Christ the King in our lives. You see, leaven is the spiritually destructive presence of self-reliance, status quo convenience, and self-preservation that holds us back, church. It holds us back in North Roanoke. We're getting there. We're getting there. It holds us back from total surrender to and dependence upon Christ. Whatever you ask of me, Jesus, it's yours. We know this. We know that this is what leaven is because of Exodus chapter 12 where we read of the Passover, where the Lord spared the firstborn sons of the Israelites because they had the blood of a sacrificed lamb on the entrance to their homes. The firstborn sons of the Egyptians were killed, and when the Egyptians discovered it, they told the Israelites, you can leave now, that's enough. And what did the people of Israel do? They took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. You see, in the Old Testament... Unleavened bread comes to symbolize relying on God for deliverance that comes through sacrifice. The Israelites could not wait around to add leaven to their bread. They had to go. When it was time to get out of Egypt, they had 
to go. But the disciples still don't understand. They still don't see that Jesus is the promised Son of God who's going to offer Himself as the once-for-all Passover lamb and free them from their bondage to sin and death. They can't even remember to bring bread on the boat. They surely can't cure the hunger of their soul. The disciples prove, by the way, church, that we are all infected with the blinding sin of self-reliance. The disciples can't enjoy the satisfying presence of Jesus because they do not yet see that they do not see. So Jesus is trying to wake the disciples up, and He does it with a barrage of questions in verses 17 to 21. Do you see those questions? Why are you discussing that you don't have bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Sadly, no. Do you have a hardened heart? Sadly, yes. Having eyes, do you not see? Sadly, yes. Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Do you not understand? Sadly, at this point, the disciples are no better than the Pharisees. They hear and do not hear. They see and do not see. And for us to be satisfied by the greatness of Jesus, we must see the greatness of our blindness. As Edwards writes, faith is not separate from understanding. It is only possible through understanding. The faith for which Jesus appeals from us is not blind faith, but a faith that is born of understanding and insight. It's not just any Jesus who saves. It's the Jesus of the Bible. It's why Jesus has given us His Word that we might understand who He is, but it still takes a work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see Who He is, which means finally we must receive understanding through the healing touch of Jesus. The disciples arrive at Bethsaida, the house of the fisher. And the lead fisher, if you will, the Lord Jesus Christ, heals a man. Why? To show His fishers of men in training that He will be the one to open their eyes and overcome their spiritual blindness. Jesus asks a barrage of questions in 17 to 21 about their blindness. But in verses 23 through 25, there are eight different Greek words to describe the concept of seeing in two verses. Eight different words. This is not an accident. Like the blind man, the blind disciples will see because of the touch of Jesus. As Edwards notes, the ability to see both physically and spiritually is a gift of God, not of human ability. Of course, Jesus could have healed the man with a word, right? Jesus could have healed the man's vision before they even got off the boat, but instead he heals them in stages. Why? To show how it is that he's going to lead his disciples from spiritual blindness to sight and from first seeing to ever increasing levels of clarity. Have y'all ever heard the saying, ignorance is bliss? There are times that that's true, but not in the Christian life. In the Christian life, bliss does not come by ignorance, but by seeing. You see, Jesus wants to open the eyes of His disciples and the eyes of His church to an ever clearer vision of His person, of His power, His grace, His sacrifice, and His beauty Like the man in Bethsaida, we must let Jesus take us by the hand and lead us out of the village, verse 23, and minister to us personally where He touches the places of our spiritual blindness, not just once, but again and again and again as our vision of Jesus and His grace and His glory and His splendor becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And do you see what happens in verse 25? 
everything comes into focus. C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Church, the clearer our vision of Christ, the more clearly we see the deep need that we have for His life and death and resurrection, the more clearly we see who Christ truly is for us. Guess what happens? The more we are compelled to live every aspect of our lives in the satisfying pursuit of the greatness of Christ who is healed and is healing us. Stacy and I on Friday went back to the eye doctor. And her vision has not been improving in the way that we thought that it should by this time. She's doing okay. She's going to be fine. Her vision's better than it's ever been without glasses or contacts on, and yet the results are not consistent with where we thought we would be post-surgery. And so we sit in the chair and we do the better one, better two. And, and, And what we've learned is we're going to have to get a redo on the surgery. Now, it's going to be fine. But let me ask you a question. What kind of husband would I be if I said, you know what, she can see all right, it's good. You know, she, she got surgery and she, doesn't have, she can walk through the house pretty much okay. She can't drive right now, but you know, She's better than she's ever been without glass or contacts. We'll just get the glasses and the contacts and we'll just move on with life. Even though there's a big gap between where she currently is and where she could be. Don't worry about it. What would you think of me as a husband? You low down, dirty, rotten dog. That's what you'd think. You know what we do spiritually all the time? We say, well, I kind of saw who Jesus was in my life. I saw enough for Him to save me, I think. and Now I'll just go about my life and I'll leave Jesus over there and not even really look at Him very much. I'm not going to plow in the Word and get plugged into a Sunday school class and do the things that that are going to enable the Spirit of God to fine-tune my seeing so that I can see ever more clearly and ever more perfectly how beautiful Jesus is. Because when you see the beauty of Jesus, when you're captivated by the beauty of Christ the bread, guess what happens? Like a a mountain when you're on a hike and you're going to the falls and it gets clearer and clearer. You, You are compelled by it. You are drawn to it. You are wrapped up in it. You're captivated by it. And the reason that the church is asleep today, not just North Roanoke, but the church in America, is we've stopped letting Jesus fine-tune the clarity of the vision and the majesty and the wonder and the beauty and the awesome splendor of how great Jesus is. And when we are compelled by a vision of how great and glorious and merciful and powerful that He is, nothing else in our life matters. We'll stop deliberating about our physical bread because we're so hotly pursuing the glorious beautiful Jesus who has called us his own and nothing else will satisfy until we see him not as though in a mirror dimly but as Christ face to face how foolish it would be for me to say it doesn't matter how well my wife 
sees. How much more foolish that we would say, I saw Christ when I was seven and he saved me and I don't worry about that anymore. I saw Christ when I was ten and he saved me and I don't worry about that anymore. Church of God, may we repent this morning as we partake of the bread and the crushed fruit of the vine of settling for a vision of Christ that is five minutes old, 15 years old, 30 years old. And may we ask God to touch our eyes in the places of our blindness that we might see more clearly how awesome our King is. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, as our deacons make preparations this morning, to serve the bread and the crushed fruit of the vine. I pray in my own life. I pray for your church. I pray for Christians across this country. God, that you would captivate us with a vision of your glory that exceeds all the other things that are competing for our attention. God, as we hold the bread in our hands and as we drink the cup with our mouths, that we would feel and know how great you are and how deeply we need you, that we might see and be satisfied. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.